Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Well, as we are in this uh, Live a Better Story series, we are on, I think, our fifth week. And it's been really rich for me. It's been rich for our, our small group. And grateful that you guys are a part of it. To begin, I want to do something a little bit different. I want everyone to stand up and answer this question to a neighbor or two. And the question is this. Flight or invisibility, what super, superhero characteristic would, do you want? Flight or invisibility? All right, stand up and tell a neighbor. You all have a seat. Thank you. This question divides many of us. There are those of us who would love the ability, especially on Mopac on a rush hour day, the, the ability just to have the wind flying through your hair, just to be able to fly wherever. And then there are people who don't want to be seen and be able to walk wherever they want to, also known as creepy, weird people. And so you, I just wanted us to know who are those people. We'll run a second background check on them before we put them in charge of any kids. Um, you know, it's funny. I, this past week, I've been thinking about the role of the hero in many of our stories. It's wildly popular, the role of hero, and I've noticed, especially in the last couple of years, the role of hero has become more and more common, especially in, in blockbuster-type movies. I saw in 2009, Disney approached Marvel Comics with the idea of purchasing the right to their hero stories, their comics, and so they came up with another, the number of $4 billion. $4 billion is what uh, Disney paid Marvel to the rights to their story, just $4 billion. What a deal, what a deal. Within the next year, they released this movie called The Avengers, which is the third most grossing uh, movie of all time, and they made uh, $1.5 billion on that movie alone. And if you look at the top 10 most grossing mo- movies of all time, four of them are Marvel superhero movies that have been rela- released in the last eight years. So not only are hero movies popular and powerful, but they're also incredibly lucrative. So you see the, in, the incentive to come up with a new superhero movie or a new idea. And I promise for every great superhero idea comes out, there are many bad, bad ideas. For as many like, great hero ideas, there's really bad hero ideas. So I wasted some of my time this week in service of you to research what are some of the worst superhero ideas ever. Would you like to hear some of them? Okay, here we go. Cue the music, please. Okay, right here. First one is DC Comics in 1963 came up with uh, Matter Eater Lad who had the incredible ability to eat through anything. You can't imprison Matter Eater Lad because he'll just eat through it. A car, prison bars, it doesn't matter. He's hungry. He's Matter Eater Lad. Bad idea. 1989, this is, oh my gosh, I can't even look at that. This is a character called Arm Fall Off Boy. Literally, that's his name, Arm Fall Off Boy. And his, his incredible ability is his arm would fall off and he would be able to use the non-using arm as a weapon. Because you never can find a good thing to use to club someone, so you have your arm that can fall off. Yeah, yeah, I love that little quote too. Yeah, it's so good. 1947, this is, here is this character. Now, 1947, 
this idea of being able to withstand any sort of heat or fire is a great idea. So uh, what was popular back then was asbestos. So this is asbestos lady. With, she had the ability to be flame retardant, and she also could uh, cause respiratory issues to all later on. <laughs> 1983, this villain, uh, this villain's name is I Scream. I, I Scream. He was an X-Men villain, and he could turn into any flavor ice cream. Isn't that weird? Oh, wait, no, this is actually, I'm sorry, this is someone different. This is, this is the blue snowman. Yeah, because, listen to this, is a short-lived nemesis in Wonder Woman. The blue snowman was a woman posing as a man dressed as a blue snowman that could shoot icicles out of the pipe. Yeah, there, right there, the blue snowman. There you go, bad idea. This right here is ice cream. Look at the ability to turn into any flavor because it's not enough to be able to turn into ice cream. You might want a strawberry flavor or chocolate or coffee or something like that. And last but not least, here is my favorite. This is Hindsight Lad. The, this is a, a sidekick with the incredible power to tell you, I told you so. <laughs> the worst dinner guest ever right there. Bad superheroes. That was my wasted time this week in service for you. Now, why is it that we love good hero stories? Like, what is it in us that we flock to these movies? We're willing to pay money to go see and, and take in these stories of superheroes. I think it's because there's something in us that longs to have the belief that someone can step into the chaos of this world or, in, or of our lives and to save us, to make things right. Like a hero does what no one else can do, like steps into the mess and the conflict and the chaos and rescues us. And I think there's this deep belief that we need a hero. And as unexpected, uh, as unexpected as it is, we look at our own lives. This is one of the things that we found throughout looking through the story of Scripture. If we look at Scripture through the big story, that kind of idea, what we find out is that we can't do this on our own. Left to our own devices, we'll turn on each other, we'll live for self. Well, we, can't, we can't do this, we can't walk faithfully with God. We need someone to rescue us. And as surprising as some of those really bad superhero characteristics are, I, I, I just know for sure that when people saw Jesus step onto the scene, they go, really? Asbestos lady? Really? When they saw Jesus step into the abilities that he had, I'm sure they were very confused. Let's think about how Jesus' story begins. When Jesus was born on that starry night in a manger, that hero stepped into this world as a vulnerable infant, born to wide-eyed parents in, 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 a, in a scene of a borrowed barn with livestock there. Not the most impressive entrance by a hero. And even when the foreigners, they heard about Jesus being born, they go into Jerusalem to find him. And where did they go? They go to the palace. They go to Herod, Herod's palace to look for, of course, this is where the hero would be born. But instead, the hero entered into this world with the smell of manure in the air to a family in disgrace, in obscurity. Really? Like the big hero of God's story, this is how Jesus enters? This is who he is? And as Jesus has continued to live, the narrative tells a surprising Savior 
revealed Christ of an unexpected hero. Jesus, he, he shrugged off approval. He, sh- he shrugged off the temptation of power and, uh, and, and, and approval. He, he, he went to the people who were the least likely to give them the narrative of God's salvation. He traveled like a vagrant. He went to the people of lowest regard. And what was Jesus' superhero power? Just think about it. What was his incredible ability? I would say that it was the ability to serve. Really, is that going to make the Avengers list next time? The the ability to serve. Well, you look at Jesus' life. His life is a life of ceaseless service to God, first and foremost, and then to others. Even when you see Jesus displaying the powers that he had, specifically the power to heal, it was always to serve others. It was always to make people whole. It wasn't to prop up himself. It wasn't to make himself bigger or gather more followings to include to his you know, Instagram profile. What he did, he did this to serve and to pour himself out for the sake of others, to make them whole again. And just like any great hero, he did what we could not do. I mean, I can't look at one moment in all the Gospels where it seems like Jesus was being selfish, not even for a second. Personally, I can't go an hour without a little tinge of selfishness poking out of my life. But Jesus, the hero, lived a life of ceaseless service to others. And an experience from the Bible depicts the surprising nature of Jesus as the hero. We find this in Mark 10, 35. Uh, through 45, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, it seems like this is going to be Jesus's big, big entrance into the purpose and the mission of why he came to this world. And so as they get closer to Jerusalem, it's like the, the, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, their expectations start leaking out a little bit. Their anticipation starts leaking out a little bit. In Mark 10, 35, it starts with this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pretty bold, right? Hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hey, remember, Jesus, we have left everything behind. Like, we have left everything behind, so could you just, could you just do this a solid? Could you just help us with this one thing? In verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, this request reveals so much about what the disciples were expecting when they got to Jerusalem. I don't think that these brothers were asking for some figurative sit on my right and left. I really think that they expected Jesus to step into Jerusalem to overturn things and to be, like, prominent, to be the king, to be put in power. And so they're saying, hey, remember everything that we left behind and remember us. We're going to sit in your right and your left, right, when you're king. This perspective depicts so much of not only what they saw and expected as greatness, but also what we do as well in this world. But that's not the type of story that God is interested in telling. God's type of greatness looks really, really different. In verse 38, Jesus replied to this request, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with a baptism I'm baptized with? They answered, we can Now, Mark's gospel uses this imagery of a cup again. It tells us something, and we're going to get to that later. In verse 41, this gets gets a little bit awkward, people. 
verse 41, when the ten disciples heard about this, they become indignant with James and John. And then Jesus breaks up this awkward moment with he and his disciples for a teachable moment. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers and Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. You're not going to live like that. That's not going to be your life. That's not, that's not what I'm calling you to. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see Jesus is flipping things upside down. And many of the things are his expectations. Like he, he came and flipped the powerful and, and lifted up the powerless. He flipped things around. He flipped, in, flipped around who was in and who was out in God's kingdom. Those who were just certain that they were in flipped upside down, and those who were certain that they were cast out of God's people were in. We see Jesus doing this over and over again, but one of the things that Jesus does, he flips over their expectation and their idea of what greatness is. Greatness is displayed in a life of service, sacrifice, and self-denial. Whoever wants to be great, you must learn to serve. And I'm sure that the disciples... They didn't see this as good news. Why? Is it, they, people were hoping for a Savior to do the opposite of that. They were tired of being slaves. Like Rome had came in and they conquered Jerusalem. They were tired of being slaves. So when Jesus is saying, no, no, you're going to be a, a, learn to be a slave to all, I think they went, really? This doesn't seem like salvation. People's anger of Jesus reveals the disdain for this message and I think when the crowds crucified Jesus, I, I think they crucified that type of hero. They were, no, 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 get rid of Jesus. We, we want a different type of hero. One that's going to kick out the powerful. One that's going to, to, that's going to make sure that we don't have to suffer anymore. We want the hero to, to make sure that we're safe and we're secure and we're provided for, that we're comfortable, to bring in prosperity. And on that cross, I think that now, they didn't only just crucified Jesus. They crucified their expectation. They crucified their disappointment. They wanted a different kind of salvation. So when Jesus talks about salvation includes his death, but not only my death, but you're going to have to learn to carry your own cross too. They said, no, thank you. And we might be guilty of the same thing. We might still be waiting for a different type of hero. And in this series that we call Live a Better Stories, we can't miss this very essential point. If we want to learn what it means to live a great story, we must learn this simple and yet profound truth that a great life, a great story is not centered around me. Greatness is not a story that revolves around me. At best, what we should start thinking about when it comes to our life story, if there is a hero, then a great story is learning to be the sidekick hindsight boy, or whatever his name was. Like, we need to learn to be the sidekick of what the hero is doing. Wherever the hero is going, we're with him. Wherever, whatever his agenda is, we're, we're going we're to follow that. That's what it starts looking like to, to live a good story. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What God considers greatness is a story where someone lives in service to God and others. Now, this is in contrast to the greatness that we're, we're taught in our life, in this world. If you look around this world, we're taught to chase what matters, to look out for, look out for yourself because no one else will. We're, we're taught to, uh, to accumulate more, and happiness is found in that. But the gospel challenges that kind of story. A great story is not one that's marked by living for self. And we know this. We, we know this. We, when we look around at some of the most miserable people that we know, their lives are usually marked by self-centeredness. We experience this. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a poetic description of heaven and hell in this book called The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, uh, I've read most of it. I can't say I've read all of it, but it's been, it's been really helpful for me to understand what heaven and hell might look like. And, it's, and he uses uh, poetry uh, to describe this experience. And the way in which Lewis paints the experience of hell is three different descriptions. In hell, a person can get more and more just by thinking of it. A larger house, just by thinking it. More possessions, just by thinking it. But what they don't realize is as they acquire more and more things in hell, that they're actually growing smaller and smaller and the word that Lewis uses to describe this state is they are becoming more and more unsubstantial, which is such a weird word. It means hollow. It means fragile, unimportant. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is in, in this experience to make sure that they, their life and their happiness won't be impeded by the bickering and the problems of the people around them. People are getting more and more secluded. They're, they're moving further and further away from each other. And what they don't realize is they're becoming more and more isolated. And finally, the third description of hell that he shares is in this, uh, in this poet, poetic uh, fiction. Uh, and finally, as they receive more and more in this secluded world, slowly their lives become wrapped around themselves. They are physically becoming more and more self-centered. Damned souls are totally wrapped in themselves as they are growing increasingly inward. What a picture. So, in short, Lewis is telling us the very things that our world is saying is great stories, getting more things, being more secluded from the problems of people, and living for self. This is actually his description of what hell is. Because a desire for more leads to a hollow life, Desire to remove oneself from the issues of others leads people to isolation, and more and more self-centeredness leads to a small soul wrapped around itself. What a, what a, what a depiction. And if that seems harsh, I think we can at least agree that those are markers of a really small story. But the stories of great lives that I've seen and and I've observed, are often of people who are quietly and profoundly living lives of great service to others. This reminds me of a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. You don't have to wait to get that great job before you're experiencing greatness. 
your bank account, your relational status isn't holding you back from living a great story. A great story is as close to you as the needs of the world. It's the needs of those people around you. That's what greatness is. And our world sometimes doesn't celebrate that. So a mother staying home, taking care of kids every single day, and she has like mashed potatoes in her hair from the food that was thrown at her earlier. It's greatness. Someone caring for an aging parent. No one else knows about it. Greatness. A friend walking with another friend through a really, really big struggle. I think heaven's spotlight of, of joy and delight illuminates that those kind of scenes. Like, oh, that's greatness right there. That's a great story. Why? It's a heart full of grace, soul generated by love. In the first week of this series, we talked about a literary device called an inciting incident that triggers a story. But there's another tool in story writing called the critical moment. And the critical moment is the ultimate test of the hero. Can the hero actually step in to the most critical moment, the place of great danger, when it feels like evil is going to win the day? Can they step in maybe even with the ability to sacrifice themselves? We see this many of the stories that we love most, like Frodo. Will he actually take the ring and destroy it? Or Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, if you're a fan of that. Will she actually be able to take down the oppressive power of the Capitol in President Snow? Or another hero for many of us, uh, Nacho Libre. <laughs> this is for you, Louise. Uh, returning from the wilderness where he survived only off of cactus for like a couple hours, will he be able to defeat Ramses the Great? in the wrestling ring. You know, these hero stories have these critical moments. Well, maybe not that one. But in all these stories, the hero shines in these critical moments. And Jesus is looking towards his critical moment that's waiting for him in Jerusalem. In Jesus' last week, he sidesteps the hollow praise of the crowds when he comes in on that Palm Sunday as we celebrate uh, the week before Easter. He doesn't give in to the popularity contest. He challenges the teachers, the religious elite. He clears the temple. He teaches and preaches while the threat of his death is growing more and more certain. And there on the last night, Jesus the servant wraps himself up with a towel and washes the feet of his disciples, knowing that one of them is just about to betray him. And where does Jesus go after that? A garden. The very beginning of the story, it's a garden, the very exposition of God's story. But in Genesis, the story begins with a garden, when things were in perfect relationship. And a critical moment unraveled all of that. So here in this moment, Jesus returns to a garden for another critical moment, to start redeeming the story. This is in Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, and notice this, the two sons of Zebedee. The same ones who are like, hey, right and left. That's where we're going to sit with you when you come in power, when you come in glory. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to need you to watch this moment. If you want to be a part of my glory, if you want to see what, what it means to have this cup, then I want you to, to be a part of this moment here. And so they go with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled in verse 38, then Jesus said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little further, he fell on his face with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What cup? Remember Jesus mentioned the cup earlier to those two brothers. And here he is, he's talking about this cup, and he's got, if there's any way this cup could be taken from me. What we see here is this is the cup of suffering that Jesus was knowing, was waiting for him on the cross. It was the cup of bitterness, it was the cup of death that he knew he was going to taste. And in that cup was the betrayal and failure and sin of every generation. And Jesus knew this cup was waiting for him because that was the purpose of this hero's journey. So instead of a throne, James and John expected Jesus had his cross. This moment of glory and this critical moment. And this wasn't only the critical moment for Jesus' life, but this was the critical moment for all of humanity. All of our stories are wrapped into this one critical moment. Would he, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin for us? Would Jesus actually lay himself down on this cross? Would he take this cup that he did not deserve so that maybe we could experience deliverance? I know that oftentimes when we think about the cross, we think of the, the physical pain of the cross. I think that pales in comparison to the relational pain that Jesus experienced, what the hero went through. Because think about it. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son had perfect relationship. There is no division. There is no regret. There is no sorrow. All harmony and delight and joy unending. He had never tasted separation. He had never tasted death. He had never tasted sin. And then on that moment, that critical moment on the cross, the hero was not only preparing to experience the death that he was called to, but also the fullness of the power of sin. And all of eternity, all of heaven and hell, were leaning in on this critical moment. Would Jesus be faithful to the end? Can this hero actually go through with it? And upon that cross, when he said he was thirsty, he tasted what he did not deserve. And that's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd never experienced that before. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. A ransom is a payment that's given to purchase someone else's freedom. A ransom. To bring about a great deliverance. A ransom. That was our hero's story. Our hero's story is that he came with a willingness to give his life so that we can experience deliverance and freedom. He took the cup of sin and death so we could taste and experience salvation and freedom and a life of joy of knowing God again. That is what our hero did. And though many of us think about Jesus today as our example, as a great example to follow, and he really is, he is a great example for us, our hero is more. We live a better story, not through our striving, not through our trying to be like Jesus. The only way we enter into a better story is the fact that we have a Savior who's made it possible. 
We have a, a Savior, a hero, who drank the cup of the cross so that we can experience the cup of new life. Our ransom has been paid to free us to know and to walk again with God. We are set free to have the relationship we were always created with, the, the intent to have with God and with each other. We're not held back by our actions and our failures anymore. We have been set free by what Jesus, our hero, has done. You're no longer claimed by your past, by your regrets, by spiritual brokenness. There is now a love that claims you. For now and forever, we belong to God. For now and forever, we belong to God because Christ has paid that ransom. We've been set free. So what do we do? We enter into this story. We enter in because we give up our script of greatness that we have assumed in this world and receive Jesus. We take on Jesus and we also don't even take him only as our Savior, but also as the author of our new life. That our heroes now showed us how to follow him. We receive this good gift, and we enter into that story that Jesus has already written for us, and we follow him. He's not only the ransom of the world, but he is the ransom for your story. Once we realize that Jesus is the hero of our story, then and only then can we move to live a better story by serving others. Why? We've been set free. We've been set free. And we follow our hero into true greatness. 